A very good morning. It is Sunday the 24th of February. The year is flying by. This is On The Record with me, Gavin Riley, with you until one o'clock this afternoon. If you want to contact the programme, you can give us a text on 53106. That will cost you 30 cents. We are also on Twitter at NewstalkFM and at Gav Riley. A busy show on the way, but we'll start as we always do by taking a look at the Sunday newspapers. Our panel in studio this morning, Gronin EA, reporter with the journal.ie. Good morning, Gronin. Hi. Uh, Larry Donnelly is a law lecturer at NUI Galway. Good morning, Larry. Good morning. And Sheila Riley is a former editor of the Longford League and now head of digital with Iconic News. Good morning, Sheila. Good morning, Gavin. No relation before anyone asks. Uh, let's have a quick look at what's on the front pages of the papers. Uh, the Sunday Independent, Property Revolution. And it's one of those headlines that has a red underlining so that you really know it's a revolution. Um, Pay older people to downsize and move, says report. Half of new apartments must suit the elderly. Land agency chief's radical rent for life plan and property taxes very low compared to elsewhere. This is a report by Philip Ryan, uh, who has had a look at the housing options for our ageing population policy statement, which says the government wants to encourage older people to right-size to appropriately sized units. It effectively means that the government will now be possibly paying older people to downsize and move into certain neighbourhoods that might be a little bit more age-friendly. That is according to that report as well. Uh, also a few lines on the top of the paper um, from one of the members of the syndicate that won the aforementioned €175 Euro millions jackpot. Um, a member of the family has said that the publicity is taking its toll. Matt Rogers said it's like being in jail. He was standing behind a padlocked gate of his farmyard yesterday when he told reporter Patrick O'Connell that he was happy at the start but now with all the people calling it is a little bit like being in prison. It's just a lot to take in. He said there is going to be a press conference with that family syndicate in the coming days. Sunday Business Post, meanwhile, no election. And that's also in red. So again, you know, it's a, a real striking headline. 75% of voters want the Fine Gael Fianna Fáil deal to continue. Children's hospital scandal, not a deal breaker for voters, uh, reports Michael Brennan. Voters have sent a clear message that they want to keep the government in office for the crucial run-up to Brexit, despite the mismanagement of the National Children's Hospital budget. It comes at a time when Fianna Fáil leader Micheál Martin is under pressure from members in his own party to quit the confidence and supply agreement that is keeping the minority government in power. All also below the fold, Susan Mitchell says that the HSE has almost exhausted the funding available it has for new drugs in 2019 and it's already only two months into the year. Uh, Sunday Times, uh, finally, possibly the sniff of a Brexit breakthrough. Dublin offers UK assurances on backstop. Coveney is working with the EU to break the impasse, according to Stephen O'Brien. He writes that the Irish government and the EU are prepared to offer fresh assurances to Britain on the temporary nature of the backstop in a new document alongside the withdrawal agreement in an attempt to break the political impasse at Westminster. Simon Coveney told the Sunday Times that the EU is looking at ways and working with the UK of trying to provide more reassurance on the temporary nature. There are ways of providing reassurance to the UK to get the future relationship done. So perhaps a new document alongside the withdrawal deal that could potentially get a Brexit deal over the line. But sure, we'll be talking at that in just a few minutes. Um, under the fold, TDs allege that votes were bought for Harris. Opposition TDs have accused independents of supporting the government in last week's confidence vote in return for political favours for their constituencies, were it ever thus. Uh, the Sunday World also has a few comments from uh, that member of the, the Noel family that won the uh, Euromains jackpot again. It's like being in prison. Uh, but it's also reported there that the family has also been thrown into some sadness too by the death of the mother-in-law of one of the family of, of nine who won that Euromains jackpot last week. And the front page of the Irish Mail on Sunday. Besieged ministers, 35 minute wait for the Gardaí. 
A sweeping review of cabinet member security is underway after it emerged that there was a significantly delayed Garda response to a minister's plea for protection from protesters, the Mail on Sunday can reveal. Senior Garda sources have confirmed that it took 35 minutes for a patrol car to get to the family home of Health Minister Simon Harris two weeks ago after he reported a protest outside his house. Mr Harris has said his wife and three-week-old daughter were followed to their Wicklow house by protesters who then stationed themselves outside the property for several hours. That headline, of course, coming uh, just after there's been a second protest outside uh, the main entrance to Leo Varadkar's uh, residence in, in Castlenock and also that protest last week at the home of Richard Bruton as well. So that is a little bit of what's in the Sunday papers today. Our panel growing in the A, Larry Donnelly and Sheila Riley are here to go through them. Um, I, I'm loath to start with Brexit and you know we've been here so many times before and it seems that the only thing that changes Larry is that the deadline gets ever yeah. closer it's now only less than five weeks it's barely a month now um, but it seems that there might be some reason for optimism perhaps with the Sunday Times splash about Simon Coveney working to put together a new document because the debate up till now has always been Britain says reopen the withdrawal deal itself the Brexit deal we say no but now there's the idea of perhaps putting a legally binding post-it note onto the front which could keep everyone happy yeah and I I think that that's a, it's a very interesting development, and I think that it's one that a lot of people had forecast as we hit that March 29 deadline. Uh, and I think that that is uh, as follows: that uh, minds, if not hearts, are being moved by the reality of what would happen in the event that there's a no deal. Uh, and I think that both from a European perspective and within the United Kingdom, uh, I think there's a growing awareness, and indeed in some quarters probably uh, some panic about that. And as a lot of the papers have said today, uh, if there's a majority in the UK Parliament for anything, uh, it's a majority who says we don't want a no-deal Brexit. Mm. Uh, and it, what that will mean in the run-up and in the coming days is anyone's guess. But I think that we have to welcome uh, the moves afoot um, on the on the backstop. Uh, that having been said, uh, I do think, and one of the, the pieces that struck me most today is whatever happens between now and March 29th, uh, Colin McCarthy is writing the Sunday Independent today, uh, basically arguing that whatever happens, and he's, I think, of the mind that there will be some kind of deal uh, done before, if not, there might be an extension of Article 50, mm. but whatever happens, he terms this the end of the beginning, that no matter what <laughs> this happens... This is only the beginning? Oh, come that on. In the longer, that in the longer term, at some stage, unless the UK ultimately negotiates some kind of agreement where Great Britain is part of the single market and the customs union, mm. eventually they're going to be border controls uh, and that is going to have potentially uh, devastating impact on multiple economies uh, so that there's a long way to go on this road still. Indeed, and, and indeed it could be tricky because although there is reason to be uh, confident based on page one of the Sunday Times, the paper giveth and the paper taketh away because if you only turn the page uh, to page two, uh, and this is a verb I wasn't aware of, May is set to mm. funk the Brexit vote, uh, Gronia, as the UK cabinet splits. Uh, hands up, by the way, did anyone know of this verb to funk, which is apparently to stall something with no real reason why or no plan of action? Seemingly, that's what it is. We had to check it up this morning. I read, oh. it, I read it wrong earlier and I thought it was something entirely different. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's, there's that possibility that that could happen too. Um, but Gronia, it, it seems that every time that there is possibly a shred of maybe getting some progress, that Theresa May again kicking for the long grass by promising people a, a meaningful vote this coming Wednesday, I think was the plan. And now leaking to the papers maybe three days early that she just not, might not bother doing Yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised if that verb was invented purely for Theresa May mm. because this is exactly the kind of thing that has been happening. I think it's the third delayed vote that we've had. Mm. And it, I mean, 
she knows uh, she's kind of putting off this dead end that that seems to be inevitable on March 29 because she's running out of options. Um, I think the, the story in the front of the Sunday Times is interesting. Um, we've had uh, reassurances from the EU before, though, on the backstop and the UK. It wasn't enough for the UK Parliament mm. to vote through that deal. But now we're closer to March 29, so maybe it'll be enough. I wouldn't be surprised that if there is a a solution to this uh, kind of Brexit stalemate, that it will be solved. If there is a solution, it will be solved by something that's been offered before. Yeah, and it's particularly striking as well that if she is to delay this particular vote, Sheila, it might be because if she were to lose this vote or that this one Mm. has the prospect of being amended, that this is then the final river beyond which she loses all control of Brexit, that we have no idea what happens then. And she would rather control the impasse rather than lose control of the well, process. Well she needs to control the impasse if you think about it. Once she loses control of the process it goes back to Parliament essentially like you know if say if she doesn't bring that vote I mean there's a big chance there that um, Yvette Cooper's amendment in relation to kind of that no deal will be absolutely off the table mm. and that uh, they'd be forced to kind of extend Article 50 that that would go through and that does take the power away from May and essentially obviously rips apart the whole Tory party because Pro- probably they, they, won't be Although they don't want a no deal, they actually can't. There's a strong cohort of Tories that don't want to rule it out either, well, oddly, oddly enough. Yeah, because they know they yeah. can't. It's legally. It uh, well, and, and and speaking of that cohort, I've just pulled up the front pages of some of the British papers today. We've obviously mentioned that Sunday Times piece. It leads with the idea of May funking the vote. And again, that's funk, F U N K, that vote, which is due to happen in three days' time. But the Sunday Express, again, which tends to, to give the voice to those people who want there to be no deal, May urged, don't panic. Brexiteer MPs warned the PM to ignore the Remain rebels as she vows to finish the job. Uh, then the Sunday Telegraph, Brexit delay, an elephant trap that we can't escape. Not just a bear trap, an actual <laughs> elephant trap. That, that is some weighty trap. Um, the Observer, Corbyn told to change course before it's too late for Labour. Uh, and after that, then you get out of Brexit territory. But it all again, for yet another Sunday, seems to be, Larry, a case of there not really being any trick up Theresa May's sleeve, barred the possible exception of delay the vote after which she loses control. Yeah, no, it's a, we don't know. And I, I think it's a product of something that Grania and Sheila both pointed to is what can people agree upon? It just doesn't seem that there's anything that they can agree uh, on and that she could have get the numbers to do what needs to be done. Uh, that's the impossible position uh, that she finds herself in. Now, given a lot of the things she's done in recent past, I, I don't have any more sympathy for her. Uh, however, she is in an impossible bind because as you say, the Tory party is so riven uh, with division on this uh, that it's it's very, very hard to see what's going to happen. All we can do, as I said before, and I, I tend to agree with this view, is that in the end, minds will be focused by what would happen if there's no deal and that something but, but will emerge. those minds not have been focused by now? Though, yeah, they should have been. And you see, there still is, yeah, and as is evidence from the headlines there that Gavin's after reading out, there still is this belief in there among the Brexiteers that, you know, Europe is going to blink first. And, you know, mm. we're still hearing them come back with this mantra time and time again, which is utterly, utterly alarming, obviously alarming for us from the point from where we sit, but also alarming that that is actually their strategy, their, mm. their proposed strategy sit tight because Europe down. will will uh, will blink first. P- people, you know, have, people have said that that is actually a long-standing tactic of the UK government mm. to wait until the last minute and then agree to a deal last minute. Because and they that, believe that this is how Europe operates. Exactly. Exactly that but kind of in international agreements that this is that this kind of um, Mexican standoff is something it's more of like a well, British standoff kind well, of thing. I mean could the, the front page story in the Sunday Times could that perhaps be read as something of a mini blink uh, mm. on the, in terms of the backstop? Could that be something that 
precipitate some movement uh, within the Tory party? That's an open question. Yeah, one thing that I thought was very uh, striking about this week, and I was a little bit amazed that it didn't uh, get a little bit more mileage. Simon Coveney was attending a meeting in Brussels on Monday, and he spoke to some reporters afterwards. And he was pointing to the uh, the Brady Amendment, which was passed, which has got the UK into the hole that it's in right now, where they say they will only pass the deal if the backstop is dispensed with in favour of alternative mm. arrangements. And he was making the point that, in fact, the deal as it stands already allows for some sort of alternative arrangements before the backstop comes in. That as, as he sees it, if there is no deal by the end of the implementation period, whether it's three or four years down the road, and if technology at that point exists that allows an open border without having to tie anyone's hands customs-wise, that in fact you could do that so that the deal already provides for exactly the one thing that Britain there, is looking for. There's been misconceptions around the backstop from the start. I mean, I think uh, Boris Johnson and Michael Gove um, uh, admitted that when the backstop was agreed in December 2017, they didn't really understand what it was about. Mm. Um, and now we have misunderstandings again. Those alternative arrangements aren't alternative to the backstop. They're alternatives to a hard border, which, again, is not replacing the hard border. It's like another measure to stop a hard border happening on the island of Ireland. And that the Tory MPs that are really, really opposed to delaying Brexit don't even understand that basic concept. It is It is deeply worrying about how many people are, are trying now to argue in favour of things that they don't necessarily understand themselves. But, but bringing it a little closer to home, all of the question marks about Brexit and exactly when the impasse might end or what's going to happen to the border is obviously a fundamental uh, part of the jigsaw as to when the next general election might be uh, and it seems this morning Sheila that based on the Red Sea poll carried out by the Sunday Business Post mm. um, that people really don't have any appetite to plunge us into any little bit more chaos than we already have No I mean the headline there on the front of the Business Post 75% of voters want um, the the confidence and supply deal to continue like that's mm. the absolute screamer out of that poll if you ask me you know and and when you break it down that's um, even voters in most parties I think is it 70% of Sinn Féin voters which mm. we were talking about earlier is the rule really that, that, that jumped high. out wow. yeah 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 that's, yeah, that's, that's the real really jump really out jumping. figure out, out of that um yeah and i mean like look at there's it's kind of the party that really jumped out there for me in that poll is the is Sinn Féin you know there's good news for Sinn Féin in that a 5% jump you yeah know, which, which is almost the, the very lead as a result because it came out so late but that's their, their highest poll result for nearly two years it is yeah, yeah. and it probably comes at a great time for them you know uh, Mary Lou Macdonald is in situ a year now as leader uh, she's needed some sort of a break the indication is that this this is it coming if you like in terms that they're as the as the paper says there with Michael Brennan's piece that they're kind of their politics of division if you like is paying off you know that they're um, they are essentially the party of opposition. Fianna Fáil mightn't like it, but of course the Sinn Féin have become the party of opposition because Fianna Fáil are tempered by the fact that they're propping up the government. I mean, naturally enough, having said that, it's not doing them too much damage either. They're mm. still within an ass's roar of Fine yeah, Gael well, and they'll be happy enough with that themselves. That said, I'm not sure how much Fianna Fáil have been tempering their opposition because I sat through Micheál Martin's speech, speech at the Ordesh last mm. night and I'm sure some of you watched it and it didn't seem yeah. like he was holding too much back as regards his criticism. No, but I mean, that's very deliberate there I mean he's answering as you sure you're hearing the vibes as much as I am you know from particularly from the grassroots you know he's answering uh, the grassroots there I thought his speech mm. was very very good mm-hmm. last night um, in terms of kind of dealing with the rumours if you like that have been circulating for a long time now and, and I'm sure he's you know that the vibes that they're getting from the grassroots in terms of people getting really fed up with this deal fed up of propping up Fine Gael, fed up of defending what they see as indefensible and he tackled the key issues 
last night with mm-hmm. that, you know, housing, health, um, you know, and I suppose mm. then the rise of Sinn Féin as well, he tackled that too. But it was, he really did go for, for Fine Gael there last night. He really did tackle kind of, you know, acknowledge that people want to get out and want to be canvassing and want to fight an election, but that this is not the time to do it. On that topic though, Larry, 75% of people might want to extend the confidence in suppliers saying now isn't the right time to perhaps have an election. And yes, the same poll also found that 41% of respondents believe Fianna Fáil should bring down the government over the concern of national charges hospital. <laughs> which only just goes to perfectly articulate the bind the Fianna Fáil are in, really. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the way I would put it is that uh, Michal Martin, in my view, is capably steering an unwieldy ship uh, through difficult waters at the moment. Uh, and again, I think the speech last night was a good uh, political speech. I think it reflected some of the discontent and responded to some of the discontent within his own party. Uh, but I think at the same time, uh, I think Martin, implicit in Martin's political judgment on this one, and I think this is something that might come out from the polls a little bit, is that the electorate might give Fianna Fáil some credit uh, for not pulling the plug during Brexit, that the, the public views Brexit as such uh, a calamitous event, I think rightly so, mm. um, that he will be judged well and his party will be judged well uh, for not ha- causing uh, a general election in the middle uh, of all the chaos that could ensue. I think that's what's really at the heart of his judgment. And what he was doing last night is saying, I, th- I think between the lines, Guys, I'm with you. I hear you on policy. I hear you on all that stuff. But we just need to bide our time. I think it's um, interesting as well that Fianna Fáil seem to be at a crossroads. Um, and it's particularly apparent over things like, you know, the abortion referendum now on whether to act on this, uh, the National Children's Hospital. There's an interesting stat in the Sunday Business Post that says Har- er, uh, the f- poll finds that half of voters believe, believe Harris should resign over the National Children's Hospital and that includes 56% of Fianna Fáil voters. So even on that issue that they're split and it kind of reminds me, maybe it's just because we were talking about Brexit there, but it kind of reminds me of how the Tory party is split, <laughs> yeah, and the Labour yeah. party is split and similarly we have Fianna Fáil split on so many different yeah. issues and that uh, Michal Martin has to pull them all together and try and navigate them through whatever yeah, political issue comes I, up next. I don't know if Michal Martin will thank you for the comparison to the Conservative Party. <laughs> <laughs> the, the one thing that I've struck by and that you all, I don't know Grundy, what you made of, of the speech last night, but the one thing that struck me about it was that that was a speech which was being made on primetime national television and was being watched not just by the party faithful, but by people at home who might be looking at an election sometime in the offing and wanting to know where Fianna Fáil stands. And it seemed as if that there was an awful lot of attention paid to trying to soothe the grassroots, maybe Sheila, and not necessarily so much about trying to convince the public exactly. Ah, oh, yeah, no, it's definitely about the grassroots, you know, and it has to be for them because these are the people that they want um, out on the ground for them within a matter of months. Like, I mean, you know, the local elections and the European elections are very much in sight. Now, for all the parties, not just Fianna Fáil, as you know, they'll be looking at this as kind of a, a measure of uh, how they might do were there to be a general election in this year, perish the thought. But I mean, the reality is, it's, I'd say it's more likely than less likely. And certainly that seems to be the indication in the, the papers today. Or mm. the re- reading um, a lot of people beneath the surface, there seems to be this belief that there will be an election at some stage. So, yeah, it is it is an appeal to the grassroots because they need to get them out and they need to assuage their fears, if you like, in a way. And like never underestimate how much a dyed in the wool Fianna Fáiler really hates Fine Gael. Like really hates them. <laughs> Don't think anyone's they, in any you, doubt. Do you know what you, I mean? Yeah, like never point. underestimate it. You know, they might be their neighbours and they might know that they vote Fine Gael, but it's just the Fine Gael concept they hate. <laughs> and and so vice versa, you know, and the grassroots are getting antsy without a doubt. They just, they feel that Fianna Fáil are 
propping up Fine Gael through too much and particularly do you know I think the killer is actually not going to be Brexit I think it's going to be the Children's Hospital I think that's the thing that's Larry. going to just tip everything <laughs> I, over I, I, I think I think that's the case and I think that's the delicate uh, I, I suppose high wire act that Montan is trying to pull off uh, I think the other thing that I think is probably working in his strategy and working to his favour uh, and some of the pa- some of the pieces in the papers today have alluded to this is that the shine is going off Leo Varadkar uh, and I think that uh, you know his numbers have slipped uh, mm. and I, I I suppose, that was, numbers, I, yeah. I suppose that was always inevitable, uh, but his numbers have slipped a bit, uh, and I think that that has to be another big part of the strategy. And remember why Fine Gael, uh, well, remember why, in my view anyway, the Fine Gael chose Leo Varadkar was he was the face on the poster, and he was the... Yes, yeah. absolutely. But, but some of that has come off, and also the other thing is that label about that Fine Gael always used against Fianna Fáil, or at least in recent past, that is that it can't be trusted, it can't mm. manage finances, etc., that's why the children's hospital issue is so central to all of this. Um, all of which raises the question, though, Grony, if the you know people seem to to back the idea of you know extending the government for as long as it takes to put Brexit to bed, but Brexit could be put to bed in five weeks, and I think that's why there's a lot of anxiety within Fianna Fáil because they see themselves as potentially giving Fine Gael another twelve months in power, but that two months might be enough to actually dot all the i's and cross all the t's, mm-hmm. and if there is to be a deal then there's not necessarily any reason to try and be back in the government afterwards. Yeah, well, the the language around um, there not being an election soon because of Brexit is helpfully vague. So like Michal Martin said to the Sunday Business Post, we're going to give the government space for 2019. And I think it was said before that also, similarly though, um, it could go on indefinitely. Like uh, another Fianna Fáiler said, as long as Brexit is undecided, once we have certainty <laughs> on that, I mean, when is that going to be? Like that could yeah. go on for years, if yeah. especially if there's a no deal. So like it's, it's kind of like um, similarly yeah it could be this year but it also could be years from now before you have certainty over Brexit and they're definitely not going to uh, extend the confidence supply agreement that long so also the public um, perception of they wanting to the confidence and supply agreement to continue up until what point does that run out as well? Like, is that up until March 29th? Is that if there's a no deal that they want to be, you know, next year? Like, where? Mm. how long is that well, kind of it, political? Yeah. It's, it is one of those how long is a piece of string things, isn't it? Because if there was to be no deal, then the next battle we're going to have to have is that Brussels will inevitably say, you have to defend the single market. We're going to say, but we're not going to impose controls on the land border. There's going to be a row, the length of your arm for that. And presumably now Fianna Fáil, Sheila, are on the hook to try and support the government through all of that too. Yeah, yeah, you see, that is going to be the issue without a doubt because I mean I've said it loads of times before if there is no deal we are going to have to have border and uh, like um, even Colin Colin McCarthy kind of says that or Mm. says that uh, today you know like the reality is uh, for Fianna Fáil Grania is perfectly right that that's that support for the confidence and supply is only going to last for a certain length of time and that is the reality of it and to be honest they could make good hay and well they know it from a disastrous handling of Brexit like were Brexit to really start to pinch very quickly mm. you know were it to be seen that Faragher took the wrong track and uh, brought Ireland down the wrong road or whatever he could pay they could see that he could pay a very heavy price very quickly and move quickly then in for that purpose but they need the numbers and even he alluded to himself the other mm. night when he was down in Mungar Varadkar did when he said yeah they're supporting us but like were they 5 or 10% higher in the polls how much would they continue to support which, us and like really that is the, the brutal truth of it which is exactly the uh, the scorpion and the frog sort of relationship that you were getting yeah. earlier on they just can't help themselves <laughs> no. even when they've got another 12 months you still have to get a bit of a dig in yeah, there that's, I mean in that context what I, what I thought was in the context of the, the vote on Simon Harris last week uh, a most unwise intervention 
intervention by Jim Daly. I was I just thought, going to mention uh, that. I really don't understand why he took the opportunity to absolutely lambaste Fianna Fáil for past mis- alleged past misdeeds uh, in that context. And I think Ann Rabbits shouted across the chamber, like, yeah. are, you, are you kidding you, me? You we have a vote in six, six minutes. minutes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you know? um, amazingly, the text machine is not quite exercised by Brexit or by the timing of the next general election, but rather by the use of the verb funk in the Sunday Times. Uh, Paul, <laughs> uh, thank you, Paul, for getting in touch. Paul says, ah, now, funk is in use for decades. It's in, uh, used in, for example, the player funked the 50-50 tackle. It means that they pulled out due to timidity or cowardice, etc. And Margaret says, you should upgrade the English and they wouldn't be so surprised at the use of the word funk in conjunction with Theresa May. It is a word many of us are aware of and is in the dictionary. Students are very familiar with funking their exams, not doing them out of fear. Uh, thank you for that, Margaret. We will try not to funk uh, some of the other talks <laughs> in the papers uh, when we're back with the panel in just a moment. On the record. On News Talk. Uh, welcome back. It is 31 minutes past 11. It's Gavin Riley with you on, on the record until one o'clock uh, this morning on News Talk uh, 106 to 108. Uh, News Talk FM is where we are on Twitter. I am at Gav Riley. You can also text us 53106 at a cost of 30 cent. Larry Donnelly, Sheila Riley, and Groin in the A from the journal.ie are all with me this morning. Um, the screaming headline on the Sunday Independent Property Revolution. The government is to begin paying older, paying older people to downsize and move into age friendly neighbourhoods. A major new report reveals the unpublished report says older people living in social housing will be offered financial incentives before the end of the year ahead of extending the scheme to private owners, um, homeowners. Grania, everyone would say, you know, property is probably not best distributed and that if you have an old pensioner who might be widowed or whatever, they might be the only person living in a home. They shouldn't be living in a four or five bed house that somebody else could have better use for. But should the state be paying people to move out when someone who's moving out of a house like that is going to get a pretty big whack of a sale price anyway? I mean, I suppose, uh, I think there's a line in the analysis in, in the Sindo today saying that it's a backing that the government kind of prefers this or backs this strategy in the housing um, sector, which mm. I think is interesting. I also think it's like, it's good to see kind of fresh thinking a little bit as well. Yeah, um, That we haven't kind of seen mm. up until now that there's kind of like move to kind of think a bit more creatively mm. about how we use the spaces that we have effectively. And also just anecdotally, you'd always hear about... Uh, you know, she's moving out of the house because it's too big for her and that kind of talk and that there's that kind of um, government incentive to change that in an effort to fix other problems as well that are in the housing system is actually quite... um, it's kind of like a good news story almost and something that has been so, seems so hopeless and and never-endingly uh, problematic. Mm. Um, Larry, I can imagine our listenership already being split into two camps. There'll be those who say that the position that I outlined a moment ago, which is that these people already have very expensive houses. If they sell them, why mm. on earth should the state be intervening there too? And yet there'll be others that say, up till now, the market has quite clearly failed to try and redistribute people among housing, to try and get single occupants out of very large homes, and that if the state needs to intervene and hand people a modest pile of cash to do so, that actually it's no harm done. Yeah, I mean, while I can see both sides, and in particular, I can see the side that I think we haven't mentioned, I suppose, the sentimental side of somebody who's Mm. lived in a house Mm. for so many years that has such treasured memories. Uh, Not only that, but somebody who's part of a local community and a neighborhood and friends and all that kind of thing. That having been said, uh, the market, as you say, has clearly failed. I mean, 
the reality is people trying to get into the the housing market right now especially around Dublin uh, it's it's a it's a monumental undertaking and it's unfortunately it's beyond the reach uh, of too many so as Grania says uh, I think whatever creative thinking and outside the box solutions we can put to work uh, on these things uh, I think the better the other thing that I just I, I say it over and over and over again I'm not this is not a uh, I suppose a unique or an original thought but it just strikes me that uh, instead of in the you know with all the infrastructure we have with transport never easier to drive around the country etc uh, we get becoming more and more Dublin centric when I think we should be really placing the emphasis uh, on the other cities it's always going to be cities that are driving the engine we really need to focus on the other cities don't get me going on the metro link I promised the producer that I wouldn't go off on a tangent <laughs> but just don't don't goad me on that um, but the Sunday Business Post by the way has also seen the same report it's down on the bottom of page 7 in theirs um, Hugh O'Connell uh, takes the line out of it that nearly a third of all new homes will have to be designed and built in such a way as to accommodate elderly people under these government plans which seems Sheila at least to be the sort of joined up thinking because it means that if you are going to try and incentivise people to get out of a big home which is now that no longer what they housing need, for them. that there is a housing that is bespoke for their needs yeah yeah I, I, like it does it, it actually does make total sense when you think about it and that report also says that 50% of all new apartments and, thir- and as you say 30% of housing so I think the apartment element of the two is important but for me the big the key part of it would be keeping people within their communities that you're not creating for want of a better word ghettos with old people with just old people in them. I don't mean that <laughs> <Get old>. <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here first we'll give you that one you win the prize today forget funk it's not the word of the morning it's ghettos okay so that they're not creating ghettos um, you know moving people out of the communities that they have known uh, as Larry said all their lives like I think that's a really really crucial aspect of it for me one of the biggest um, elements of what we have seen in the boom times where people have moved down the country you know and I see you know like people who were born and bred in Dublin living kind of in 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 towns kind of beyond the commuter belt if you like is that they have been taken out of the communities where they themselves mm-hmm. were reared yeah. all their lives and then they're commuting back up to Dublin every day for work and then granny and granddad are living in Dublin as well so they're going do you know what I mean it's, mm. it's put a huge burden on people and I think we should try and get away from that and make you know, a b- apartment living more attractive within the city, um, maybe lose our own um, our own thinking, change our own thinking in terms of a family home. Does it need to be this, the three bed semi-D with the garden uh, front and back? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, there's a well, whole kind of cultural change there, cultural revolution that needs to take place well, in ourselves to, to promote city living for people who actually were born and bred in the well, city. There is a little bit of that too because uh, the Sunday Independent has rolled in its coverage of this new report with an interview that it's done with a guy called John Moran and many people might think that that name rings a bell because he used to be the Secretary General at the Department of Finance. It was quite unusual that he was brought in without having a lifelong career in the civil service first. He has now been appointed as the chair of a new state agency which was unveiled in the middle of last year called the Land Development Agency and the idea behind that is that it's effectively supposed to be some sort of super agency that takes command of all the land owned or controlled by various state agencies and allows that to be used a little bit more intelligently. The one example that they give is the National Mental Hospital in Dundrum which is going to be vacated in the next couple of years. They say that's a a few acres in the middle of a very leafy area that you could immediately convert to housing and because it's within state ownership the state can get going on preparing housing on that now mm. rather than waiting for it to be vacated and anyway, that that is a slight digression on my part but John Moran who is now the chairman of that agency has told the Sunday Independent that he also wants the agency to develop state-owned apartment complexes where people can rent for their entire lives and the rental model would allow a couple to pay enough rent during their working lives to allow them then to stay in the apartment uh, until they pass
pass away, which, which strikes me, Larry, as a really, really groundbreaking, perhaps more so than the idea of incentivising people to get out of houses that are too big, because the one area that we're really looking at a crisis a few decades hence is people who are now squeezed out of the property market, who are forced into rental for as long as they can imagine. And then what happens when their income dries up or they retire? At least now the state has some solution in mind for those people. Yeah, it's a, it's a very progressive, forward-thinking idea. I think it's probably one of the reasons mm. why Moran has been brought in, because he's a very capable thinker, uh, and I think he brings a lot to the table. I think that's a, a very good idea. Some of the other things uh, he mentioned in the piece, for instance, was to, you know borrowing that from what other countries have done. For instance, like putting infrastructure in place before you build it. That is, you know, having a, a, a rail station, having bus stops, having shops, all those kind of things mm. in situ before you start building around it. I think all those ideas, uh, I think, are really good ones. Uh, and again, it's time we have some creative thinking on this front rather than going back to the same old, same old. And I agree with Sheila. Uh, to some extent, that's going to cu- require uh, a cultural shift and a shift in the way uh, people here think as well. Um, Courtney, I suppose we could all welcome this and that if this all materialises in the way that the government is suggesting that it would be possibly good news for everyone. But is it a little dispiriting that it is now, you know, the early months of 2019 and there's been a clear housing crisis for at least five years, if not more, and that it only seems now that there is any kind of a, a real intervention to try and get people out of homes that aren't appropriate for them? I mean, better late than never is my initial well, reaction to that. But uh, I think, uh, yeah, it is. It, it's 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 been a massive decade long problem as well. I don't think that the housing crisis. It's not a um, a single pronged kind of problem either. You're battling fires from all kinds of angles. So it is a difficult thing to get to the heart of, I suppose. I think that at the at the heart of that whole um, uh, that cultural shift that needs to happen about owning. Uh, um, a, set, a three bed semi D house. Um, Moran seems quite passionate about changing that himself. He mm. says in the interview that uh, that he wants to change that, and that it's about the provision of better services, kind of thing. As mm. Larry was saying earlier, so that he said that might be instead of having houses having gardens uh, for their kids in a city centre, that there be a, a playground where they could all use, yeah. which I think a lot of people would have no problem with. Mm. Um, but it's that kind of joined up thinking. And the problem the government made um, decades ago when they were building social housing was not having services and infrastructure in place for people when they built them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was kind of like literally roofs over people's he- heads rather than homes kind yeah. of thing. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Um, it's interesting actually, Willie Keeley, who has done some analysis on this on pages 16 and 17, I'm just going to read a few paragraphs, we might leave it there after that. Um, he's talking about the idea of people who might be reluctant to downsize and the various reasons why they might do that. Um, This is what he's written in his piece. I once knew a man who lived in a fabulous house in South Dublin, the kind that would have no trouble gracing the front page of a property supplement. He brought it in the good times when he was an important executive with a big company. The company went to the wall and with it the job and then worse still, the pension scheme. So within a few years, the man was finding it hard to put together the the price of a few pints with his mates. He was cash poor, but he still had the trophy home, so he was asset rich. And if logic had any say in the matter, the house would soon have gone on the market and he would have downsized and walked away with a sizeable cash amount to live on. But that's not what happened. It didn't matter to him that 80% of the house was unused or that there were rooms he could hardly remember being in for ages. He had children, all grown up and moved to the other side of the world. So the theory was that the house had to be held on to in case they ever came home, if only for a holiday visit. And he had this other niggling thought that somebody in his position is often burdened with. Wouldn't it be great to be able to leave this suburban mansion in his will for my kids? So he carried on his life of near penury and then he died. And the children sold the house and divided up the money between them. 
Too many people, usually aging couples whose children are gone from the homes, find themselves rattling around in houses that are bigger than they need to be. They know the kind of feeling of opening a door of what used to be someone's bedroom, which is now totally surplus, but ultimately they never end up getting out of the home. And I think actually it's a very good illustration of uh, just the difficulty that people have in moving out of homes. Uh, We have a few minutes before the next ad break, so a very quick uh, straw poll off the top of each of your heads. Um, Sheila, what would you do if someone told you that you just won 175 million euro? Oh my God, what would you do? Not if they call a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> Other than panic, panic, panic. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it is the 175 million euro question, isn't it? Well, ah. obviously you'd, you'd give up work because that would become your job looking after your 175 million. I would look after all my family. I would try and do something about the housing situation and I would look at dealing with domestic violence in Ireland by putting proper hostels in place and uh, supports in place for women and families, women and children who are leaving their homes. I always think it's very magnificent for people who say that they've got some good cause that's close to their hearts that they want to give the money to but I often do wonder that if someone handed you 175 million would you not just rather buy a yacht instead or something? <laughs> people can, can be very you personally interested you could just do that uh, Larry what would you do with 175 million euro I, I, like Sheila I would take care of my, my family and as many of my friends as I could I would give some away uh, and then I would use the rest to ensure that I either had uh, a golf club or a pint in my hand every waking hour of <laughs> <laughs> and, and then you'd, you'd need to pay for a little bit of a dialysis machine. Gronia, <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, aside from possibly trying to get a foot in the property ladder at our age, what, say, what would you yeah. do with 175 million? Uh, I never aspire to own a home, so that would be probably first on my list. Um, or maybe that's the problem, that, that if I had the money that I'd want to buy instead of rent forever. But uh, I think that the issue of like whether to give to good causes or to... Um, treat yourself mm. I mean with the 175 million the beauty of that you don't have to choose no, do you? Not <laughs> no. Yeah. no absolutely um, not so yeah I think uh, I would I would have to have a I'd probably get a lot of I'd probably uh, whatever my parents told me to do with it I'd probably do that because <laughs> <laughs> Carcone I'm not sure to make a decision that, that, <laughs> money. that is a phone call that I really want to hear Mammy I have some news I need some advice um, I've just got a, a giant lump sum um, I was just doing a, some quick um, sums here on the back of a virtual envelope the interest on 175 million if you got it in deposit where you were given 2% interest even if you lost a third of that to dirt and USC and other things you would still get 2.3 million a year in interest alone net for yourself so you could you would end up never spending the 175 million you could oh give it to God. all the good causes you like uh, let us know what you would spend your 105, so 175 million on um, 53106 is the text number that will cost you 30 cent which of course is very little money in the context of 175 <laughs> uh, back with more from our panel in just a moment on the record on News Talk. Welcome back. 13 minutes to 12. Gavin Riley with you until 1 o'clock this morning on News Talk 106 to 108. 53106 is the text number at a cost of 30 cent. My newspaper panel is still with me this morning. Growing in the A, Larry Donnelly and Sheila Riley. Um, Larry, there's a little bit of spread throughout the papers today, although the story came out so early in the week that there actually isn't very much for the Sunday papers to say about it. But Bernie Sanders um, announcing yet another tilt at trying to become president. The one thing that I, I can't quite get my head around is the fact that he seems to ride both the Democratic and Independent horses at the same time. It's only three months ago that he was re-elected to the Senate. He was the Democratic nominee to be re-elected in Vermont, but he did completely dispensed with their nomination and decided he wanted to be an Independent. Now he decided he wants to be president again, but he wants to do it in the vein of a party that he only, you know, cast off 
three months ago. So what's the relationship there that he seems to be able to be both things at the same time? It's an entirely logical question. Uh, He caucuses with the Democrats, but he's never, uh, you know, fully affiliated with the Democratic Party because he, in his view, the party is too corporatist and too far to the right, uh, generally speaking. Uh, He runs under the Democratic ticket simply because uh, a third party candidate in American politics has absolutely no chance of getting elected. But it doesn't say much about the party that if it's just a vehicle of convenience rather than something that he truly truly buys into. Yeah, I mean, it's a fair point. But again, political parties in the United States operate very differently to political parties in the Irish system. They're less uh, tight, cohesive groupings than they are very big, broad Mm. tents and broad churches. And that's what what happens when you have a two-party system in a country of 320 million people. Absolutely nobody would reinvent a system that way, but that's the way it is. And the two parties collude in what is a mutually beneficial arrangement. Um, In a sentence, are we likely to see that final report from Robert Mueller this week, or do you think it's going to be a little bit more in the offing? I don't know. (laughs) <laughs> well, that is that is the shorter sentence that I was expecting. But, but thank you for following directions. Um, to get onto slightly more fun stuff, uh, page three of the Sunday Times uh, appears to offer two different varying economic indicators, trying to figure out exactly whether the economy is booming or not. And one that has been put forward by Valerie Flynn is that Dublin bars and nightclubs say expensive bottle service is becoming more popular with revellers who are paying up to two hundred euro for a bottle of gin. With customers having extra cash in their pockets due to the economic recovery, more Dublin venues are offering a service usually associated with clubs in London, Ibiza and Las Vegas. Gronia, I don't know whether it's just the circles that I move in, but I, like, do people actually go into nightclubs and say, can I have a whole bottle of vodka or a whole I, bottle of whiskey? I've never heard of that. Um, but like, it's, it's just, I, I mean, uh, when we're talking about no deal Brexit and that it'll put a financial strain on people, I mean, I would see that that is one very small, very upside that we there might be less of that <laughs> ridiculous <laughs> but, it, it, but if, if this is a good it's, economic it's, indicator Sheila are, are people not going to be having a go at kids these days again because they're going to be saying that why would you spend 200 euro buying a bottle of gin when you could go down to a legal or an Aldi and get it for a tenth of the price or less before yeah, you go out yeah, that yeah, it's, yeah, it's flashy like, for the sake of flashy it's, it's beyond flashy like it's uh, maybe it's the Cavan woman in me I really really this one is just it's just a bridge too far with me to be honest I, just, I promise I didn't I'm try nearly, to lead you into I'm, I'm nearly I'm reeling even at the thoughts of it and you know what absolutely jumped out at me well first of all when I looked at drinkers laptop bottle service as I said to you I've, I've got a two year old at home bottle service means something entirely mm. different to me at the minute you thought so it meant bring I, your own I, bottle I, and yeah, get it warmed up behind like, the bar yeah, is it a bottle of Aptimal what <laughs> but um but the thing that really jumped out at me was uh, the club in, uh, the new nightclub in Dublin 22 mm. which offers uh, full bottle service to customers who book a table uh, tables cost 150 uh, between 150 for four to six people and then a thousand for a table on a, on the stage which can accommodate 10 to 15 people so not only are you going to be knob enough right essentially to pay for your table then you're going to pay a thousand euro <laughs> to get on the stage well, the like are we actually is this peak vanity? Yeah, now? well, the way that yeah. they justify it is that the, the events manager there has also said that actually you're not really paying for the table. It's just a guaranteed drink spend. So if you pay 150 euro for the table, that then that is money that you've already prepaid. Yes, which drink. does it does make sense. And maybe um, some a better Cavan economist than me will actually break it down and say <laughs> that it does make financial sense. But there was another element of me, of me that says as well, if you are at a table and you've paid for your drink and whatever, 
then if somebody else joins your company or if you go to join somebody else's table, do you lose out on your drink? Or if somebody joins yeah. your company, should you be charging them yeah, then how, for the how drink? Yeah, how do rounds work? I, I don't do you start contributing I, into yeah. quarters of the table? <laughs> I mean, it, it, just, it just strikes me that after the, the, the last boom, so many people said, never again, we're never going to go down that road again. And we look at stuff like this and all I can imagine is this summer, uh, as we lead up to the Galway races, I'll be saying to Vietnam veterans, please don't come near, near Galway yeah. because you could have a flashback with the helicopters <laughs> <laughs> it's like the opening scene to save it, Private Ryan. Yeah. Over it. Um, the other economic indicator offered by the Sunday Business uh, Sunday Times, rather, is a slightly more traditional one of people actually getting married, because they point out that the new uh, new statistics show that the marriage rate has increased since the recovery. It is now uh, four point eight per inhabitants, one thousand inhabitants rather, um, which is up uh, around about an eighth uh, from what it was only three years ago. So it seems, Larry, as if now that people have a little bit more money in their pockets, that they actually want to do it by uh, spend that money by having a giant hoolie for friends and family yeah yeah I mean I, I suppose you know if you have more 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 money helps getting married because I think we're married almost 10 years and I don't know if we have it fully paid off yet <laughs> uh, so I, I, certainly uh, you need money to get married so I'm not surprised by the statistics um, hands up anyone who's staying up to watch the Oscars tonight not my hand. no hands uh, is, does that tell us that the, the Oscars or that the movie industry doesn't quite have the same pull on us this year or, there, or is it just oversaturation I mean, it, that we just stopped caring it seems like an old fashioned kind of thing um, especially when we have streaming services like Netflix that are threatening the, the, the industry anyway I think people watch it every year um, there are people who watch it every year out of habit or loyalty mm. and then there are those who just completely not turn a blind eye to it but will wa- have a passing interest in it the next morning yeah. kind of thing you pick up your phone you read the tweet to say oh that one best picture yeah. great oh, he's move on. Uh, best actor actress yes. or whatever um, and it's it, like the, the ratings have been fallen they tried to uh, air t- or not not air I suppose uh, three categories during the ad breaks this year and there was kind of uh, uproar about that there, to try and shorten the three hour or four hour ceremony or whatever and, and people were really annoyed about that people so they, within they the industry to, the audience yes, doesn't care yeah exactly yeah um, but it said like it was kind of like a um uh, dis- disrespectful mm. to the categories cinematography I think was one of them mm. kind of thing which is you know important in cinema um, but uh, yeah I think it's it's interesting if people aren't um, there's a couple of interesting things uh, to, to look out for I suppose there's lo- um, I don't know if you guys watch uh, go to the cinema regularly but I've only watched one of the uh, nominations for Best Picture um, I think it's one born. of my most prolific years I think I've seen four or five of them ah. and even still I'm just not really all that bothered by who wins some I mean, of them are nice I mean I don't really care about someone else's expert opinion on which film was better than another one it, it, as long it, as it's not A Star Is Born it, as long as it's not A Star Is Born the most overrated film of the year uh, in uh, my you, in you, my you dug out some uh, a very quick brief we have a few seconds left but there's a few seconds for a few lines from is it The New Yorker The New Yorker yeah about a, a Star Is Born a guy called Richard Brady wrote, with the wrote class. it but it was quite a scathing kind of analysis of Bradley Cooper in particular who directed and starred in the film he says um, if there was a best high budget selfies award Bradley Cooper would have little competition for his self-exalting direction and performance in A Star Is Born it won't keep him from winning he says and then <laughs> later on he says uh, about uh, Lady Gaga in A Star Is Born she takes the scraps that Cooper leaves her and feasts on them had Gaga had a director who wanted to see her as much as he wanted to see himself it would have likely have been a performance for the ages what, what I think now that justifies is that there should be an awesome 
Oscar for the best writing about the Oscars <laughs> that's up there that's shortlisted already uh, thank you to Lisa who has got in touch at 53106 she says that David Walliams uh, best selling book is Gangsta Granny so there is definitely a market she says for gettles I so oh. want to live in a ghetto Lisa I think we're on to something uh, that is all we've got time for a huge thank you to the panel Granny the AA reporter with thejournal.ie Larry Donnelly law lecturer at NUI Galway and Sheila Riley head of digital at Iconic News thank you all very much for joining me this morning uh, more to come from the show don't go away On the record. On On News Talk.